You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Before becoming a life coach, Louise Tenekun spent over 18 years as an entrepreneur and consultant working on sustainability and ethical trade. Passionate about making a difference in the world, Louise talks to Susie about the challenges she faces both from a personal and ethical point of view. And that was the first time I came across a guy. He was a professor at the School of Management, but also at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And he was the first person I'd ever heard say, there's no reason why we can't have a strong economy and a clean environment. And that message really hit home with me. My guest today is Louise Tenekun. Louise has over 20 years experience of working in sustainability that involved traveling to different parts of the world, investigating global supply chains for well-known large retailers. Now looking at environmental impacts of their products and the impact on people. And is now a life coach, a mum, a wife, a columnist, and I'd like to say an eco-warrior. Hello, Louise. Hello, Susie. <laughs> Why you started off in sustainability? What prompted you? Oh, my goodness. I have to go back a long way. So I was doing my master's in international relations in the States. And the school that I was at, you had the opportunity to draw on courses from all the different graduate and professional schools and we had the opportunity at the beginning of term to go shopping and we literally went and sat in on each of the classes and the professors would try to convince us that their class was the one to take and that was the first time I came across a guy he was a professor at the school of management but also at the school of forestry and environmental studies And he was the first person I'd ever heard say, there's no reason why we can't have a strong economy and a clean environment. And that message really hit home with me. So... How old were you then, did you say? Gosh, I was 20. Okay, so that made... That's quite an impressionable age, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, And you hadn't heard that before? I really hadn't heard that message before. Mm. To be honest, I mean, that was 30 years ago. Sustainability wasn't really a mainstream issue at that time. You know, people Mm. were beginning to talk about it, but it wasn't a really big thing. So you heard this from your professor. Mm. And how did you move forward with that? Well, I designed my course around sustainability. It became a course in environmental policy and management. And while I was there, I put together an international conference and I drew speakers from from across the world to talk about how we could improve the environment and get competitive advantage at the same time. So it was trying to put a real business edge on it. And through that, I met a number of people in the UK who linked me into people when I got back. And that was how I got my first job as an environmental consultant. And you started working, as I said, with quite big retailers. I was actually taken on to work with B&Q, the DIY stores. And I worked pretty much exclusively with B&Q for quite a few years. And they had a a very passionate, um, rather young, maverick sustainability champion at the time. And uh, he and I worked together and we were we were looking at global supply chains. We were looking at supply chains purely from an environmental point of view. And one day we get we got on a plane and we went to India to look at the impacts there. And we walked into a shed where people were polishing doorknobs, brass doorknobs. And they had scarves around their necks to keep the dust out of their mouths. And when we looked a little bit closer into that, we discovered that the TB rate amongst brass bear polishers in that part of India was significantly higher than the rest of the population. And the message we took from that was people are dying to make the products. Mm. And clearly, 
that just rang massive alarm bells, obviously. And I must remind ourselves here, the, the year was when you were, do, were doing this was it sustainability work, work for... B&Q. For B&Q. Oh, we, did you say we're talking about 25 years ago? Yeah, that would have been 93, 92, 93, around that time. What sort of prompted B&Q to do that? What was their message? What were they trying to get across? I mean, was it just an internal thing or was it a message they want to get out to their customers? It was really the beginning of a sea change in that company, I would say. They were among the absolute pioneers. Um, there was one guy on the board who took a gamble on this young sustainability guy who is, who is now head of sustainability for ArcelorMittal, which is a vast steel company and is, you know, has been a, a real leading light in the sustainability field. So it was, it was really one man's gamble, I would say, but the company got behind it and it was, it was both internal and public facing. Mm. And do you think then that that was quite a sort of a unique moment for big retailers? Or do you think there were a lot of retailers, companies doing that? Because I don't think that was in the mainstream. It was in the public knowledge, was it, at that time? No, it it wasn't. Um, There was quite a bit of media coverage at that time. You know, every so often retailers were getting their fingers burnt with big stories in in the media, whether that was about child labour or about low wages or about poor health and safety, or fires in factories and people dying. So it, it, it was beginning to gather momentum as a sort of story, but the, no, there wasn't the kind of awareness that there is now. And did you see them, the retailers and the big companies, did you see them act on your findings? Well, to begin with, we were quite a maverick sort of company, but the companies that we attracted at that time were companies that really wanted to make a difference. And so, yes, there was quite a lot of action. There was quite a lot of... We were sort of helping them do sort of pilot projects. Well, actually, if you want to pay people more, how can you make that work? Is there a way to make things a bit more productive? Is there a way to, to sort of generate more money so that you can then afford to pay them a bit more? That, that sort of thing. Or how do you train people in health and safety? How do you help people become aware of the risks so that they can begin to take responsibility for their own health mm. and safety. And so from there, you spent, how many years did you spend doing your sustainable coaching then? Gosh, so I was doing, um, after a few years in 97, I set up my own consultancy with a couple of friends, business partners. Why did you do that? Because I think we wanted to widen our net away from just, you know, I'd just been working with B&Q up to that point, mm. essentially. And other companies were getting interested in the same kind of work. It was becoming... Not mainstream, but it was very much on people's agendas. And so we just saw an opportunity to um, to reach a wider audience, mm. I think. So yes, there was some action. I mean, I did that for about seven years. And one of the reasons why I left was that I felt we had become... It had become too much of a tick box exercise. Within, within those seven years, it shifted to the mainstream. It became something that every company had to do. And we were instrumental in setting up some of the structures to enable companies to do that. But it just became all about, oh, let's do an audit, let's report, rather than what are we really going to do to make a difference? That was my feeling anyway. Mm. That was seven years within that consultancy, which was my own company. But no, I left that essentially for personal reasons, Mm -hmm. which was that I got to the age of about 34 and I'd been completely, my life had been taken over by work, essentially. And I got to that age and I thought, if I don't do something about this soon, if something doesn't change, then I'm going to wake up and it's going to be 10 years down the line and I'm not going to have a family. Yeah. But in the back of your mind, you've always been an environmentalist, an eco-warrior. You've always been thinking that things need to change mm. but maybe frustratingly maybe that you were having a family and you couldn't do both it's always been about I suppose my motivation has always been about 
changing the world. Whenever people ask me what I want to do, it's all, that's that's always been I mean, my. Always answer. been like that, but certainly <laughs> since I certainly since I started working, it's it's just always been there. Yeah. yeah, I can't see the point of doing anything else really. It's been hard because I did sort of put everything on hold for sort of six or seven years, uh, and that was deeply frustrating at times. But I recognised that I wasn't. I wasn't able to juggle both, particularly doing my own thing. I think it does take a lot of energy and a lot of focus to make your own thing happen, whatever your own thing is. Um, and I think that I just didn't have enough energy and focus to do that and to parent the way that I wanted to parent. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point about having families and concentrating on one thing, knowing that you have an allegiance to something else that you're very, very passionate about, which is children, family and climate change and making mm. the world a better place. Now, with your knowledge that you have or you started to have before you had children, now you've got children, how do you find, how hard is it to share your experience, to share that knowledge that you have with friends, family, children? Do you find that you have to take it little steps at a time? Because you do have a huge amount of experience behind you. And then suddenly, climate change is in the fore again. I think climate change is particularly tricky to talk about because it is massively emotive and the temptation is to be an ostrich and to be quite honest I was an ostrich when I first had the children I literally stuck my fingers in my ears and I didn't want to know because I felt that I couldn't handle the truth of what was happening to the world when I had two tiny babies who I'd chosen to bring into that world and I I really found that enormously difficult so I chose not to do it and um, I think it's an entirely understandable response But I've now got to the point where I've taken my fingers out of my ears. I've had a long, hard, cold look, or a hot look, probably, I should say, and realised that, yes, it's pretty bad. (laughs) So I'm trying to find ways to draw people into conversations about climate change, which is why I'm beginning to take my coaching in that direction. And I think the the overlap or the opportunity for coaching in, in climate change, at first I didn't get it. I thought, well, how can you coach people around climate change? But I think the whole point of coaching... What it does beautifully is it enables people to move from a place of fear and paralysis and I can't do it into a place of action. And that's where we all need to go around climate change. We need to get beyond the fear. We can accept it. It's there. It's not going to go away. But it's how can we accept that, live with that, be with that, but still move into action. The art of protesting. Is that your way of Mm. actually... Yeah, it is. No, that's a really, really interesting question because... I don't know the answer to that yet. And I have well, you actually... think you might do some protesting? Well, <clears throat> I think protesting is really important. I think it's a, it's a really significant piece of the jigsaw. We're not going to see the change we need, the scale, the speed, until it's enough of a problem that it's the first thing Boris Johnson thinks about when he wakes up in the morning. And let's face it, he's got a lot of other things to think about. Well, he has, you're absolutely right. So the only way we're going to get it where it needs to be on the agenda is for it to be a thorn in everybody's side, I'm afraid. And I do think that non-violent civil disobedience is probably the only way that that's going to happen. So I am going next week. I've just committed to go to the Extinction Rebellion October uprising next week. And I, I must be honest, I was a little bit hesitant because I was a little bit like, this is a really important piece of the jigsaw, but is it my piece? Exactly your question. Mm. And I still don't know. But I figure I owe it to myself and to my children and to the world to find out. 
why are you hesitant about it? Mm. What, what makes it so... I mean, actually, we're hesitant on most things about protesting. And once we see people marching, I suddenly feel very guilty about not going. So we're all hesitant, but why particularly you? Because mm. you have so much knowledge about what we could do that... I've been asking myself that question just <laughs> this morning, Susie. I've been wondering in the house going, why am I so hesitant? There's a bit... I, I think it's to do with how people within Extinction Rebellion are perceived. Extinction Rebellion is ordinary people who care passionately and cannot see another way to make people wake up. They will sit down in the middle of a bridge and and politely, non-violently disrupt things. Because, I mean, it's very easy to get frustrated with that kind of disruption. But climate change is going to disrupt our lives in so many more ways than people sitting in the middle of a bridge in London, you know? Uh, but most people, I think, aren't there yet. Yeah. Do you think that women are there yet as opposed to men? Do you think that have you found that some of your are your friends who are of the same on the same page as you are they both men and women or do you think it, because the findings are mm. recently that women are taking on board this issue much more than men they have sadly they're more at home with the children than the men are and so they worry about the future and they worry about the future because it's living through the eyes of their children. So from your point of view, have you seen a bit of both? Maybe it's not a gender issue in your patch or in your area. I think it probably is a gender issue, if I'm honest. Um, I don't want it to be. And that's not to say that men don't care about it. Maybe they are have more to distract them, because let's face it, it's we all quite welcome a bit of distraction from this particular story, I think. But, you know, interesting, speaks to your point. I've just joined a, a coaching circle created by a wonderful coach called Charlie Cox based in Oxford who is a climate change coach and she has put together we're part of the first climate change coaching circle she's got nine people together and we're all women quite recently you are a columnist yes and you're reaching out to people in their own homes who buy their papers and you are trying to not teach us but you're you're um, alerting us to what we can do at home to make a difference and actually just trying to change the culture of waste. Is yes. that right? Yes. How have you felt after doing that? You've had some response from people. I've... The response has been overwhelmingly positive, um, which has been lovely because I really didn't know what to expect. Um, I mean, literally, when I first began, I would have people stopping me in the street every every day saying, oh, thank you, this is, this is really helping. We're finding it interesting and useful. So it, it did, it was born out of a desire to help people make small decisions about how they could reduce their own impact at home. But I'm also trying to tie in global issues so that people can understand them a little bit better, make them, yeah, understandable, digestible, and also link them into what's actually happening. Like, for example, this week I'm writing about water. I had a letter from the water company last week saying that we were in a drought and that we need to reduce our water consumption, otherwise we'll have a hosepipe ban by next spring. But it's like, well, actually, how does this connect to climate change and how does this connect to what's the long-term prognosis for water in this area and the answer is it's not good really not good so it's kind of tying that in and saying and here's the part that you can play here's your piece of the jigsaw because I think we do all we I've spent 
many years struggling to find my piece of the jigsaw and it is so frustrating when you want to make a difference you want to you know you've got something to offer Mm. but you just can't see where it fits Mm. and I think a lot of people are beginning to feel that way do you find that when you have dinner with your friends or if you're with your friends and children can you actually talk about it it's a fine line isn't there between playing and talking with your children and your friends children your friends how do you get that in the conversation without sounding Militant. Well, the column is one way to do it because people invariably comment or sort of say, oh, I read your piece or, you know, so they in a way give me the in. I'm finding that people are more, much more receptive than they were. Funnily enough, we were at a party at the weekend and I started having a conversation <laughs> about climate change and then I heard the men, interestingly, yeah, really? having their own conversation Yay. about climate change at the other end of the table. And I kind of thought, well, this is interesting because a year ago, we probably wouldn't have been having either of these conversations. So from all that, do you find now that you are, I suppose, because you write a column for a newspaper, because you have experience, do you find then that the column has given you some liberating moments? Do you find that it's it's giving you that sort of platform to, to allow you to show what you believe in? Yeah, I think it is. Mm. I think it is. And particularly... Locally, it's, it's given me an opportunity to, or a platform to raise some issues that, I'm, that I think make me and a lot of other people angry in the community, things around planning and around the ways that, you know, new developments are, are not as ambitious in sustainability terms as they should be, as they could be, and that no one's really picking that up and, and holding people to task. Mm. So um, I do quite enjoy that bit. <laughs> I think there's something really important, isn't there, about holding people to account? Because it's not about blame or shame or trying to make anybody bad or wrong. It's just that we haven't got time to waste. We We have to move this forwards. And so we have to hold people to account. What about challenges in your life when it comes to sustainability and working with your family and your children and your extended family and friends? Have you literally gone into your lobby? Have you gone into a cupboard? Which is what I do sometimes when I'm really frustrated and scream your head off because you want people to understand, but sometimes you have to listen to their side of it, don't you? Yeah. And I think it's hardest to do that with the people that you're closest to, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. I think it's because we obviously are emotionally in, we're emotionally invested in the agenda. We're emotionally invested in the people that we're talking to when they're people that we're very close to. And within families, there, there already are flashpoints, aren't there? We all have our annoyances and our buttons that our closest family know exactly how to press. And this just sort of amplifies all of that. An mm. issue like climate change or Brexit for another one, you know, it's, it, that's another flashpoint for many families. And it doesn't mean we don't love each other. It just means that when we see things differently, it really matters. It feels like it really matters. Um, actually, it probably doesn't, but yeah. it, feels, it feels like it does. And I think that's why it becomes very difficult to oh. talk about these things. And Louise, what about social social media? Do you find that's that's been good for the cause or do you think it's inhibited it or do you find that you stay away from it because it's just too much that you can't handle it all because some people are really good at it and they love it Mm. they thrive on it how does that work for you I mean you want to get your message across I have a bit of a tricky relationship with social media I think it's fair to say in some ways I think it's great because it really gets you can you can get a message out you can mobilize people you can connect with people you would never otherwise connect with and you can start a dialogue and discussion I really notice that it makes the newspaper column much more live when when the column goes online suddenly you get comments and it becomes a live debate rather than just a flat 
article which people are reading on their own. So from that point of view, I think it has great potential. Personally, I can go down a complete rabbit hole um, with social media, particularly around um, climate change. You know, it can it can just really drag me down. And so I don't engage with it too much. Mm. And what about education and children, your children and your friends' children? Do you think there is a lot more can be done in schools? Mm, definitely. I don't know an awful lot about it because my children are still quite young and I haven't really... I'm not really aware of how climate change in particular is being handled in the national curriculum. This is a topic that's very close to my heart. How much do we tell our children about what is really happening in the world? And I'm still working that through. Make it relatable for them. So use stories, use images, use animals in particular because they can really relate to animals. That we have a duty to tell them because to keep it from them would be wrong but at the same time we can only give them what they can stomach and cope with and I think it's got to be bit by bit by bit yeah. so for example I've, I've, I've thought about um, would I take my daughter who's eight on a protest and the conclusion I've reached at the moment is I won't until she asks to come and when she asks to come because it's her thing then I'll take her yeah. gladly yeah. But at the moment, it's just it's just too soon. They're going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives. They mm. don't need to start worrying about it at eight. And in your day-to-day life, <laughs> now that you have this... Well, you have an amazing cause and you're doing really, really well and you're, you're certainly telling a lot of people, a lot of readers, and how to change the way we use things, how not to waste things. But are there mistakes that you make that sometimes you don't want to tell people? Constantly. Yeah, I'm glad you're human. Constantly. <laughs> Yes, big mistakes. I, t- I took a little bit of zero waste challenge recently and I realised that that is incredibly difficult. Yeah. And there's no way I'm ever going to be zero waste. No way. Oh, goodness me. The, the biggest issue for me, which isn't exactly a mistake because it is very intentional, the big issue for me and my family is flying. Because there is an argument that all you really need to do or the two most significant actions you can make is not eat meat and not fly. And we don't eat meat, so we can tick that box. But flying is, is, is much more difficult because we come from a generation. I think we think it, it, we, we were brought up to believe it was our birthright to travel the world because it was relatively cheap, it was easy, it was available and the world was open to us and we all loved it. And to walk away from that, I mean, also my husband is from Sri Lanka, so we have family there. So to just say, well, we're never going to fly again isn't going to wash yet. But that sits quite... I have a big tension around that. Mm. Sits quite uncomfortably with me. And future-wise? I think the future is probably around developing coaching for individuals, but also for groups and taking that into business and taking that into organisations. Because it's partly about providing support for the people who are already working on these issues and struggle, you know, with the... In a way, it's the mental health side of it is very important. But also that mental health side gets in the way of action. You know, if you're, if you're stuck in... If you're stuck in anxiety and fear, you're not going to act. And I passionately believe that if we're to solve all the big problems that we face, not just climate change, but, but all these problems, it's going to demand the very best of each of us. And I think that coaching can really help bring that out, liberate the best of you, if you like, and because it's all about peeling away all the stories and all the beliefs that we hold about ourselves, which limit us and actually we can't afford to be limited. And on that note, when you've been doing some coaching, what has surprised you? Actually, 
sort of enlightened somebody or they maybe have enlightened you maybe I think what's exciting at the moment is seeing people move into action Um, and we've all got this kind of untapped to a large extent untapped kind of you know I suppose that that emotion whatever people are feeling around this fear anxiety hopelessness it's a very powerful energetic force and if you can if you can shift it from being about fear and make it about action there is a real force there yeah. i think louise tenacoon thank you very much for talking thank you today so <laughs> that was louise tenacoon talking to susie thorpe I was really struck by what Louise said about going on demonstrations, you know, Susie, Mm. because it's exactly what I felt as well. You really want to take part in demonstrations, but you are slightly worried that you get categorised as somebody a bit kind of out there. Now, I don't think that people involved in the climate change protests are at all out there. I think they're normal people who are just terribly worried about what's going on. And that's how I feel as well, to be honest. You're right. And she did explain, didn't she? She said that it's non-violent. It's just a civil disobedience. And it's something that we should do. We've got much more bigger things to worry about than than worrying about people just sitting on papers and stopping traffic. I know it's a big thing. Mm -hmm. But she made it... She was very honest about having worries about going on a protest, even though she's so qualified to be at a protest mm-hmm. because she knows exactly, she knows exactly what it's what's about. going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, you're right. She, that's something I've... I was really pleased about. to hear her yeah. saying that in yeah. some respects because it made me feel a bit better as well. I thought it was interesting the way she said that there are two things that we need to think about that are on the agenda at the moment is trying to eat the proper way, so no, not eating meat that will mm-hmm. help the climate change, the movement. But she has a real struggle with flying in the sense that she has family all over the world, especially in Sri Lanka. Yeah. And and I thought that was quite right. She said it was our birthright to... Well, we assumed it was our birthright mm-hmm. to go on to planes, travel. to yeah, travel. Yeah. And now we're being told that actually... It's not a good thing to do mm-hmm. that. I know. So I found that quite... It is very hard. Mm. I mean, I think everyone has a different, difficult thing to, to tackle when it comes to ch- to climate change. You know, if, if people eat a lot of meat, that's their difficult thing. For some people, it's going to be travelling. For some people, it's going to be jumping in and out of cars or using public transport. I rarely use public transport to my to my shame. But mainly because I live in a place where there is no public transport. Literally. Yeah, and I can't see myself getting on a boat to any other country. I'd rather fly at the moment, I have to say. Well, it would be a nice idea if you would all the time in the world and you went on a posh cruise. But I guess the cruise liners, they're up against them as well, aren't they? They're not. Do you know what? I think if we each do something, Mm. we each do what we can, and as much as we can, then it will all mount to something, won't it? Well, as Louise said, it's all part of this jigsaw that we have to try and achieve something in it. So, yeah, well done to her. Yeah, I thought she was great. You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Mm-hmm.